Esther chapter 5 and 6 to verse 13. It's on page 413 of the Bibles in the pew. Esther 5.1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, 
which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, on whose head is a royal crown set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to, the, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Colleen. Arthur Fleck has all the appearances of being a normal guy, much like you and I, normal people wanting normal stuff, enjoying normal things. But there's more to Arthur Fleck than meets the eye. This clown for hire by day, failed comedian by night, is, he's a bit of a loner who, who never quite fits in. He, he wants to be understood, he, he wants to be liked, he wants friendship, but he gets, he gets none of this. Instead, his is, is a sad tale of always feeling misunderstood and, and, and undervalued. The more you get to know this guy, the more, the more you begin to see that something's just, something's off. Slowly, over time, Fleck's already fragile psyche just begins to break down. Eventually, Arthur Fleck descends into madness, into utter darkness, into evil. Overnight, one of the greatest, most sinister supervillains of all time is born. The Joker is born. And the city of Gotham would never be the same, right? Last week, we were introduced to the supervillain of the Esther story, Haman the the Agagite, right? This ancient, sinister foe of God's people. This week, as we continue to track with the, with the story, we're going to begin to see the dramatic unfolding of Haman's ultimate demise. The Joker, Gotham's greatest supervillain, he eventually falls, and so will our supervillain. Today marks the beginning of the tale of the fall of the foe. We're going to say a lot of F words this morning. I had to get that out of my system right away. Um, as I was outlining this sermon, I'm like, there, F word after F word after F word. That will not come up again. The tale of the fall of this great foe. Now, Haman, if you remember, he sort of slithers his way to the top, right? Becoming second in command to the king. This is, this is an evil dude with an evil plan to annihilate an entire race of people. Haman craves the Jews' destruction, every last one of them, male, female, uh, men, women, young, old, uh, every last one of them, every Jew, wiped off the face of the planet, an entire race, erased from the pages of history, all because one Jew, Mordecai, refuses to honor him. 
When we see stuff like this in the world of Esther, and even, even in our own world, flagrant displays of evil, we, we, we sort of wonder to ourselves, where, where is God when evil's all around me? Where is God when it seems like evil is winning? We may be tempted to believe God is, is completely absent, that he's not present at all. Some really bad things happen in Esther, as we've seen so far. We encounter real evil in this story. None of it is a surprise to God, though. In fact, when, when we've seen, what we've seen so far is that while God seems absent, he's very much present. And this is something that we've come back to time and time again uh, in Esther, and, and we'll come back to again and again and again. God is powerfully present even when he seems uh, apparently absent. Today, we're going to see that, that God is still powerfully present. He's still working all things together uh, for his glory and the good of those that he loves. But as the story unfolds, we're, I think we're going to begin to see that he's a little less apparently absent than he's been. The, the providential chips continue to, to fall in place, and it becomes a little bit more apparent that God's at work behind the scenes to rescue his people, to rescue us, and to put his power and his glory on full display. So, We've got, we've got a ton of ground to cover, two chapters. Let's just jump in here. The tension of the story is, is thick. By the time we get to chapter five, it's thick. We're meant to feel this tension, I think, so we're gonna back up a bit, we're gonna gain a little bit of perspective, and we're gonna get our bearings here first. Mordecai, if you remember, he's, he's deeply grieved when he gets word about Haman's plan to wipe out his people, he's sitting in sackcloth and ashes outside the palace. He's weeping bitterly. Esther is distressed when she hears what's going on with her uncle. She, she puts together a little care package, right? She sends him some new clothes. Hey, why don't you dress up in some new clothes? Puts together a little bit of food. She asks one of her eunuchs to, d- to deliver it to, to him uh, just to get the scoop on her uncle. Mordecai spills everything. Not one detail is left out. In, the, in his message back to Esther, he begs her to go before the king to beg him for his favor, to beg for justice, to plead for mercy. Esther, uh, fearful, still faithless, says, eh, thanks but no thanks. I'm good right where I'm at. Mordecai isn't satisfied with that. He responds, and gives Esther these really hard words. If, if you're in the book of Esther, drop down to verse 13 in chapter 4. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than any of the Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's words crush Esther like a ton of bricks. What do you say to something like this? What's she she really supposed to do here? Risk it all, side with God and his his people? Embrace her Jewish identity? Especially after being queen for so long. That seems way too risky. Now, keeping a firm grip on her Persian identity, that seems more safe. Esther's fearful. She's worried. Her heart is deeply troubled. Ours would be too, right? 
this is a huge decision with really serious consequences. Choose God and risk death. Choose the world and risk death. She's risking death. Esther, we know, decides to side with God and risk it all, even if it means taking on a death sentence. Here are her final words to Mordecai in verse 16. Go, she says, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther does just this. She calls up her, her squad, her closest, most trusted allies. She shares with them her deepest secret and, and asks them to fast with her. She asks them to fast for her as she prepares to risk it all and go before the king uninvited. For three unbearably long days, they fast, not a morsel of food, not a drop of water for three whole days. You can imagine, right, the shape that Esther's in. We'd be in pretty bad shape. Hunger and dehydration set in. Her body, it begins to break down. She's frail. She's fragile. Her eyes hollow. Her skin pales. Her, her posture sinks from weakness. As the day draws near, fear and dread begin to set in. You can imagine she's lying awake at night, right? thinking, can, can I even do this? Will I have the strength to follow through, to do what's right, to side with God? I wonder, do you, do you ever have moments like this where you're wondering if, if you can keep being faithful to God? Maybe even now you're sitting here and you're, you're saying to yourself, I, I don't know if I have what it takes to keep going, to take another step in faith. Maybe, maybe you feel trapped under the weight of sin this morning, sin that you've been holding on to so tightly for so long. You wonder, how do I get out from underneath the weight of this thing? God must be ashamed. All he sees is my unfaithfulness. Maybe you're, maybe you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You're in the midst of a raging storm, maybe the pain of loss, relentless worry, doubt, anxiety, depression, whatever it may be, and you don't know how much longer you can hold on. You wonder, is God going to let me go? Am I, am I worth holding on to? I imagine that Esther's faithfulness looks a lot like our faithfulness. It's far from perfect, it's frail, it's fragile. But what I find so encouraging, thinking about this, thinking about what Esther must have been feeling, what I find so encouraging is that when we look at Esther, we don't see that God's faithfulness to her depends on her faithfulness to God. Her faithfulness does not depend, sorry, God's faithfulness to her doesn't depend on her faithfulness to God. It's actually the reverse. What we see in Esther is that God is faithful to Esther and ultimately to his people in spite of her frail, fragile faithfulness. So Trinity, know that God's faithfulness to you 
doesn't depend on your faithfulness to him. Your faithfulness, God's faithfulness to you doesn't depend on your faithfulness to him. Our faithfulness, right, it's going to waver at times. God's faithfulness to us will never waver. It will never change. God looks at us and his son and he says, I've got you. You're mine. I'm not letting go. Nothing, nothing can pry you from my strong hand. Well, the the dreaded day that Esther's been anticipating has finally come. She crawls out of bed, maybe, maybe for the last time, steadying herself, her chambermaids, help her get dressed in her royal robes. They, they know the gravity of this day. This is a somber moment, not a celebratory one. Typically, you might hear some chatter, some laughter. Not today. Not a word is spoken. Not a whisper is heard. Their queen is preparing to die. You can imagine Esther's heart is racing a mile a minute, right, as she makes her, her trek from the chamber from her chambers to the courtyard and then from the courtyard to the entrance of the palace and then finally from the entrance of the palace to the entrance of the king's throne room. As Esther steps up and she approaches the threshold, she, she turns to one of the guards and she says, I, I, I need to see, I need to see the king. The guards look at each other, they look back at Esther. For what reason? Have you been summoned? Silence, not a word. One of the guards breaks the silence. You know the law. Esther shakes her head. Yeah, I know the law. The guards look at each other and then back to Esther. All right, it's your funeral. They pull the curtain back. She walks in. There's no going back now. Frail and fearful with her head bowed and shoulders slumped, She steps up to the edge of the pedestal. She starts psyching herself up, right? You can imagine, this is it. It's do or die. And then she lifts up her weary head. Her eyes meet the king's eyes. And then what she finds next is just stunning. Showing up to the king's throne room like this, unannounced, you you just don't do things like this. You don't do things like this. It could get you killed. Esther is, she's breaking the law of the land right now. She could be killed for what she's doing. But there's a chance that she could live. There's a chance that he could show her favor, that that he would extend mercy. And this is just what he does. Look with me at verse 2. I promise we're not going to be going at this pace through both chapters. We'll be here until like 5 o'clock tonight. So we're, we're going to pick it up soon, I promise. This is, what, this is what we read. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. The king's scepter is Esther's ticket to safety. And so she touches the tip of that scepter. And in that moment, she knows that her life is spared. The king, looking at his queen, concerned, he says, what is it, Esther? What can I do for you? You name it, it's yours. Even half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Esther looks at the king, and then she answers. She says, what do I want? 
here it comes, right? Esther's gonna, she's gonna give up her Jewish identity. She's gonna plead for her people's safety. She says, I wanna make you a really, really nice dinner. That's what she says, essentially. King Ahasuerus sits back. That's it? Sure, I'll be there. Esther bows, she turns and leaves, and as she's leaving, she stops and she turns back. She looks at the king. Oh, oh, one more thing. Sure, anything you want. Bring Haman. Now wait, hold up. What in the world is happening here? Esther, are you out of your mind? Are, am I getting this right? Did you just risk your life to arrange a bro date with two of the most powerful men in the world? Is that what's going on here? Why would you put yourself in harm's way for this? What's going on here? Where is God in all of this? He's powerfully present, right? Even though he's apparently absent, but we need to keep tracking with the story to see this. Persian Postal Services delivers Haman's invite. Shows up at his door. He's ecstatic, right? What a great opportunity for Haman. He gets all ready for his bro date with King Ahasuerus, and he heads out the door. And while the king and Haman are kicking it, drinking a ton of wine, eating a ton of food that, that Esther herself has prepared for them, the king notices something. It's Esther. She just seems off. She looks frail still. She still seems anxious. And so the king, still concerned for, for his queen, asks again, Esther, what, what is it? Esther, what is it? What do you need? Ask for anything. She pauses. She sees Haman. She's eyeing up Haman. And she answers, my wish and my request. All right, this is it, right? No holding back, Esther. Esther's going to let him have it, right? Here it is, my wish and my request. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow, tomorrow, I will do as the king has said. Are you serious? Like, we're, we're looking at Esther thinking, what is happening? You've got Haman right where you want him. He's drunk, he's compromised, it's perfect. Missed opportunities, right? They stack up. You might not have another opportunity like this. If you're living in Esther's day, maybe you're wondering, where is God in all of this? Does fortune favor the foe? Is God absent? It seems like it, right? Does he care at all about his, his promises? Again, God is powerfully at work under the surface. His timing is perfect. He's working all things, every last detail, even these details together for his people. We just need to hold on. We need to keep tracking with the story. So eventually, eventually the party, his party comes to an end. And Haman, <clears throat> excuse me, Haman leaves the palace on a high. Esther 5.9 says this, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. 
This dude is on cloud nine right now until, until he runs into Mordecai on his way home. So there's Mordecai again. He runs right into Mordecai. Again, still in sackcloth and ashes, <clears throat> still refusing to bend the knee to Haman. They cross paths, their eyes meet. Hamans are filled with rage. Mordecai's are filled with contempt. Wordless, they part ways. Now, I think it's really easy at this point in the story to sort of rush past this. It seems like a, a really insignificant detail in the story. But I want us to slow our pace a bit and take a closer look at what is going on inside Haman's heart. Up to this point, we've been referring to Haman as this sinister supervillain of the, of the Esther story, and he is that. But if he's just that, if he's nothing more to us than a supervillain, I think we might miss something important that God wants us to see. In other words, if Haman is just the supervillain, we can get away with keeping him at a safe distance. We can keep Haman over here, we're over here, we're nothing like Haman. But Haman's, he's not just uh, some fictional supervillain, like the Joker or something. Haman, Haman is human with real human struggles. If Haman is human who struggles with human things, maybe, just maybe, we're more like Haman than we're not. This is hard for us to this is hard for us to, to grab onto. It's hard for me this week to grab onto. I, we want to align ourselves with other characters of the story, right? I'm an Esther. Well, I'm not an Esther, but I mean, I'm an Esther. I'm a Mordecai. No, one's, no one in here is saying, I'm a Haman. You know, I'm that dude right there. Haman's problem, if it's a human problem, it finds its origin in the human heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things, right, and deceptively sick. Haman's problem, it's not just behavioral, it's not just psychological. Haman's problem is a problem of the heart. When we read in verse 9 that Haman was filled with wrath, filled with wrath against Mordecai, we're given a glimpse into the condition of his heart. So what's the problem? Is it that he's just angry? that he's just an angry dude who flies off the handle? Is he just a, a selfish guy? Is he just self-absorbed? He's all of these things, I think, but there's something deeper going on in Haman's heart that we're meant to see. We, we need to get to the thing behind the thing. So what is the thing behind the thing? What's the root of his anger, the root of his selfishness, the root of his self-centeredness? I think if we look, the root is pride. The root is pride. This is the heart issue behind all the other heart issues for Haman and for us, right? C.S. Lewis says, I just love this definition. C.S. Lewis says, pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. Holy smokes. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. Here's some other things that Lewis says, because he says a lot of great things. 
If I'm a proud person, then as long as there is one person in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. Pride is all about the comparison. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. This one hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next person. I heard one pastor say recently that pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. I love that. Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It's extremely lethal, really hard to detect in ourselves. We can detect it in everybody else, right? Everyone else around us, but we, it's really hard to detect in ourselves. There are days when I am more like Haman than not. I wonder if you feel that way. His pride is really extreme. My pride is less extreme. But pride is pride, and pride is sin. I may not be scheming to, to murder an entire race of people, but but my pride works its way out in, in the mundane stuff of life, everyday life. I wonder if you can relate. Here's, here's an example. Um, Kate and I are doing a, a few little refresh project, projects at, at our house, uh, painting new hardware, stuff like that. Um, little things. And I've really enjoyed doing thing, these things. We've enjoyed doing these things together until I start looking around online for ideas and find that there are people out there with a whole lot more money and more resources and better home reno ideas and better homes and better ideas. There's a whole magazine, Better Homes. And that, I just, that just came to me now. Um, we're looking around at all this stuff. All of a sudden, I'm no longer satisfied with the good things that the Lord has given us. I become discontent. My discontentment, friends, it's, it's just another manifestation of pride. And we could go on and on and on with examples. I'm sure you could think of some yourself. It's, it's rooted in a prideful heart, a heart that, as Lewis says, gets no pleasure out of having something only having more of that something than the next person. Man, pride is ugly stuff. It is soul-destroying. Lewis, again, says this, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Friends, is pride eating you up? Is pride eating you up? Where in yourself do you see this ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon yourself? Haman's story, I think, it's a, it's a cautionary tale. Because eventually, Haman's pride, it catches up to him. And it eventually kills him. Friends, don't be like Haman. Ask God to help you see where you're prideful. Turn from your pride. Cling to Christ. Our only hope of escaping the inevitable ending to Haman's story for ourselves is by begging God to do a work in us. It's by clinging tightly 
to the only human who was prideless. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, maybe this is a passage that's familiar to you. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. What does it say? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not a trace of pride can be found in Jesus because Jesus is, is our humble Savior. There's, there is hope for all the Hamans in the room this morning, right? The nails of my pride, the nails of your pride, were driven into the flesh of our Savior. What do we sing? It, it was my sin that held him there, right? It was my pride that held him there. But Jesus, he absorbed every ounce of my pride and your pride and, and every ounce of the wrath of God so that we could live free from the bondage of it, so that we could experience life in him. He did this so that when God the Father looks on us, he no longer sees our pride. He only sees his son's humility. Let me say that again. When Jesus looks on us, he doesn't see our pride. He sees his son's humility. Christ took on all of our sin and he gave to us, he credited to us all of his righteousness. Praise God. Friends, this is a wonderful reality, this gospel. If, if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, I'd love to talk with you after this time. I'd love to grab coffee with you or anyone around you would love to share with you what this gospel is. Knowing and trusting Jesus is the most important thing that we could do. So, Haman's pride is eating him up. So what's, what does he do? He, he throws a pity party for himself. We see this in verses 10 through 14. Haman's pride, we're not going to read him. Haman's pride, uh, it's been wounded. He needs his ego stroke. So he invites all his buddies, all their wives, and he spends the entire evening reminding them of how great and how awesome he is. And at some point in the evening, Haman's wife, she, she pulls him aside and, and she whispers in his ear. She says, hey, that, that Mordecai, why don't you just kill him? Go to the backyard. They had backyards back then. Go to the backyard, throw up a 75-foot stake, impale the dude. Be done with it. Nothing could have sounded better to Haman in this moment. And so he and his buddies, they go and they start the build. Where is God in all of this? We have all this evil and chaos over here. Where is God? God is at work. As we've seen throughout Esther, God is at work. He's powerfully present, even though he seems absent here. Drop down to Esther 6, verse 1, and some of you are thinking, man, we finally made it to chapter 6. We're going to breeze through chapter 6, so I promise you we're, we're not going to spend as much time as we did in, in, in chapter 5. Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the very night that Haman over here is, is, is building this stake, planning, plotting to kill Mordecai, that night the king could not sleep. And you're thinking, big deal. I have sleepless nights too. What's the big deal? It's just a coincidence Friends, this is far from coincidence. 
This is God's providence on full display in the little mundane, seemingly insignificant moments of the story. The king's awake. He's unable to sleep. So what does he do? He gets out of bed. He, he walks to his throne room. He sends for one of his scribes to read him a bedtime story. Uh, and the scribe gets the chronicles, which I'm assuming would probably put you to sleep. Um, either he wants to be put back to sleep, so he's like, just get me the most boring thing you possibly can get. Or... Um, maybe his pride is, is wounded. He wants to be reminded of his great tales. Um, we're not quite sure. We just know that this is what happens. They get the chronicles. They start reading. Hours and hours and hours go by until they stumble across the record of how Mordecai saves the king. Do you remember this back, back in chapter 2? Um, Josh uh, preached on chapter 2, and we ended on, on this note. Um, the scribes droning on, right? The, and, the, and the king says, hold on, hold on. I remember this guy. What honor or distinction did we give him? Can you tell me? The scribe looks down, he keeps reading, uh, nothing. Now, you got to know that this, this sort of thing just doesn't happen in Persian culture. They're, they're big gift givers over there. Um, this thing doesn't happen. This is really strange, and, and the king wants to make this right. He wants to honor Mordecai. This is a really important detail, so keep this in mind as we keep going. While the king's thinking about how to honor Mordecai, in walks Haman. Now, the story is getting really interesting here. In walks Haman. Haman, he's come with a speech prepared of how great he is. He wants to make this request to the king uh, that to, to kill Mordecai uh, before the assassination of all the Jews. He wants this to be done now. He walks up to the king, opens his mouth, and immediately he's cut off. Haman, the king says, what should be done for a man the king delights in? Oh, man, Haman is speechless. He's looking at the king, thinking to himself, He's talking about me. He's talking about me. Who else would he want to honor more than me? So he looks at the king. He thinks to himself, I'll tell you how to honor me. Here's how I would honor me. Verse 7. For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one that the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming to them, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king looks at Haman. Great. Love it. I love that idea. Do me a favor. Can you do all that stuff for Mordecai the Jew? That would be great. Don't leave any detail out. Mordecai, his life is spared. Haman's spirit in this moment, man, could you imagine? Haman's crushed. I just love this piece of the story. This is just a great part of the story. God is powerfully present, right? We've been saying this all along. God is powerfully present. He's powerfully working beneath the service to bring about his good plan to save his people. 
Well, after a full day of parading Mordecai around the city, singing his praises, Haman goes home to his wife with his tail between his legs. He gets home. There's, there's no rage in his voice tonight. He's just defeated. His wife watches as he collapses in the corner of a room. He's got that blank stare going on. This Mordecai, she says. The guy, the guy that you just paraded all over the city, is he Jewish? Haman nods his head. Yep. After a long silence between them, Haman's wife looks at him with fear and dread in her eyes. She whispers, you're done. You're done. I want to make one more observation together before we wrap. The second to last verse in Esther 6 is a really important one. What Haman's wife says to her, her husband here is, providentially prophetic. It's providentially prophetic. She says, look at verse um, 13. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Spoiler alert. I'm sorry, Josh. Spoiler alert. The foe falls. Haman will fall. The future of this great foe in the Esther story, it's, it's final. It's inescapable, unpreventable. Why? Because God is for his people. God is for his people, and God is working through the millions of mundane moments of the story to bring about his plan to rescue his people. Haman's demise is inescapable because God's sovereign will is inescapable. Now, as great of a foe as Haman is, he only points us to an even greater, more evil, more sinister foe, Satan himself. The one who has it out for our souls. Here's what we need to see. I want to end on this piece of encouragement. It's important for us to see that just as the future of Haman, the great foe of the Esther story, is final, the future of our greatest foe is also final. It's inescapable, right? It's unpreventable. The end of the story for our greatest foe is inescapable. In Revelation 20, it says that the great enemy of our soul, Satan himself, will be destroyed. He will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where he'll suffer torment day and night forever and ever and ever. The gospel tells the story of the greatest, most epic fall of the greatest foe of all time. Gen Genesis 3 whispers of this. He this is God speaking to the serpent. He, the Son of God, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This faint whisper of God's promise to rescue and redeem us, it slowly begins to crescendo as God's big story continues to unfold until finally, finally, 
it reaches a universe-shattering climax, a booming declaration of victory on the very last pages of Scripture. Listen to this victory song. Friends, rest, rest in these words. John, after seeing the Son of God in all his glory, says this in Revelation 1. He says, when I saw him, the Son of God, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. It's incredible. The one, the one who holds the keys of death is placing his strong and mighty hand on us. And he's saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. The moment I walked out of the grave marked the beginning of the fall of your great foe. Your future is sealed in my blood. Your life has been won through my resurrection. Trinity we can bank our eternity on this. Amen? We can bank our eternity on this. Jesus wins. Satan loses. The jokers got nothing on our great enemy, right? But our great enemy, he's got nothing on our great Savior. Let's pray. Father, we... We are stunned that you, would, that you would show us grace in this way. We're so undeserving of your grace and your favor and your mercy. And yet you decided in the millions of moments of the Esther story to work all things for your glory and the good of your people because you decided long ago before time began that you would set your love on us, that you would pursue us in your son, that you would rescue us, that you would give us life, that you would take, that Christ would take all of our sin, that we would be gifted with all of Christ's righteousness, that we would be brought into a family that we have no business belonging to that you would call us sons and daughters of the king. We praise you. We praise you for this. Thank you for showing us through Esther that you are powerfully present even when it seems like you're apparently absent. Help us to trust in this truth as we go about our everyday lives, as we live out the millions of mundane moments of our lives, at work, at home, in our marriages, in our friendships, here at church, Father, help us to trust you in the mundane. Help us to trust you knowing that you are powerful, that you are present, and that you are working. 
We love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.